Welcome to the Mama Sisterhood. I'm Heather Evans. When my twins were born at 24 weeks gestation, I began to think about the uniqueness of each of our motherhood journeys. I also began to understand the importance of education and support from other moms, no matter how different our lives may be. Each episode will highlight one mother's journey and the lessons she has learned on this crazy path we call life. I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome to the Mama Sisterhood. Hey, Mama Sisterhood, it's Heather. Today's episode is going to be just a little bit different. So instead of having a mom on for an interview as a guest, I am going to kind of start this entire podcast journey by telling you a little bit about our family's story, because this is what got me interested in podcasting and talking to moms in unique situations in the first place. So our journey began when I got married in about 2009 to my husband, Brian. We knew we wanted to grow our family, so we pretty much started trying to do that fairly soon after we got married. We didn't really have any indication that anything would be problematic. I didn't have any health issues. I hadn't had any family history of my mom or anyone else having any trouble with conceiving, so I thought it would be pretty easy, as we all do when we struggle with infertility. However, it didn't turn out that way at all. So basically, after about six months of trying, I went to our doctor's office And he did a couple tests. One is called an HSG, where they inject dye up into your uterus to see if your tubes are open. And it showed that one of my tubes was blocked. They also did a transvaginal sonogram, and they were having trouble seeing one side of my ovary. So, excuse me, one side, my my right ovary, they were having trouble seeing. So basically, they scheduled me to go in for a laparoscopic surgery. They thought maybe I had endometriosis. Even though I didn't really have any symptoms of endometriosis, they thought maybe that's what was going on that was blocking my tube and making it so they couldn't see my ovary very well. So they went in, and as it turns out, it was not endometriosis, but what they did find was a large dermoid cyst on my right ovary. It had kind of invaded the ovary, invaded the tube, and they found a whole bunch of scar tissue. And I'd never had any previous surgeries or procedures, so what they thought was that probably there had been another dermoid cyst that had ruptured in the past and that this was a new one that had grown. So my doctor ended up having to remove the cyst, remove all the scar tissue, and remove the right side ovary and tube because the cyst was just so intertwined into those structures. So that is where our fertility journey really began. So... From there, we tried again for a while, nothing happened, and we ended up with a what's called a reproductive endocrinologist, so that's basically a fertility doctor, and we actually began the journey of IVF, or in vitro fertilization. So because of only having one ovary, we knew that the eggs that I would produce would be a smaller number than if I had both sides. So this should still be possible though. It's definitely, you can have one ovary or have one ovary surgically removed and still ovulate and get pregnant on your own with or without fertility treatment, but that just wasn't working in my case. So we started our first round of IVF, which included vials and vials of $1,000 medication. I was one of those people who could never give myself shots. I just wasn't quite tough enough. And so my husband every day would give me 
three, four, five, six shots, depending on where we were in the month, in the abdomen, in the glutes. And by the end of that cycle, we had two embryos and we transferred both of them. But five days later, I got a call from the fertility doctor right around the same time I got my period while at work, of course, and was told that I was not pregnant. So we went to do a second round of IVF and my doctor discovered I had the same type of cyst on my left ovary, which was my only remaining ovary. So I went into surgery again on Valentine's Day of all days, and we just basically went into it praying that they would be able to take the cyst without taking the ovary because if it had intertwined the ovary like it had last time, then my chances of having my own biological child were gone and I was going into menopause in my late 20s. So thankfully, my doctor was able to remove the cyst and spare the ovary, and we went into our second round of IVF. So in case you don't have any idea, when someone's doing IVF, a good number of eggs produced might be like 18, 20 eggs, because all of those eggs, not all of them will fertilize, and then once they do fertilize, it's normal that many of them will die off each day. So if about 20 eggs is good, I was getting like four to five. And what happened was I got a call from the embryologist before day five when we would have done our transfer, all of our embryos had passed away. So we didn't even have anything for transfer. And at this point, I was just devastated. After two failed rounds of IVF, a lot of money gone. I felt like just doesn't work wasn't working for us. And so we decided to take a break. We looked into adoption. My husband and I took some time for ourselves. And we were kind of in a holding pattern. And then what happened next was that I'm a physical therapist and I was actually treating a patient who had triplets. And the more I got to know her, the more I learned she was a single mom by choice and she had done IVF to conceive her triplets with a doctor in St. Louis. And what I hadn't mentioned yet is I wasn't getting along great with the doctor I had in Kansas City. She had a pretty abrasive bedside manner, and I felt like her strategy was just to keep going and we'll do another cycle and another cycle. And she wasn't really considering the fact that each cycle was about $12,000 each. So I did a consult with the doctor in St. Louis, loved him. He had a great personality. He had a whole different approach to IVF. So my husband and I decided we were going to travel back and forth to St. Louis from Kansas City to do our third round of IVF. So despite the fact that I really loved him, we basically had the exact same results. Because I had so few eggs produced, I just couldn't get enough to have high quality embryos to make it to transfer. So we began the egg donation journey. How that worked for us was we used a company out of Illinois that our St. Louis fertility doctor worked with a lot. You sign up with them and they basically give you access to their site where you can review all of the donors. So the donors would have pictures. They had all of their health history. They had if they had ever donated before. Um, you know, a little bit about their personality, their family history. And from there, we took a little bit and we chose our donor. We really wanted to prioritize 
health, of course. And also, since it was what we knew was our last shot, we wanted to make it someone who had successfully donated before. And the girl we picked, she had donated a couple times and both had led to pregnancies. She was very healthy. All of the donors were very healthy, but she was very healthy. Her family was very healthy. And a few things that I found awesome, which is why I chose her, was she and I actually had some very similar paths in our life that were pretty unique. So when I was little, I actually did competitive roller skating and our donor had done competitive ice skating. And I had gone to school for physical therapy. She was actually going to school for, I believe it was kinesiology. There were just a lot of very interesting similarities. And so we chose her. The way it works is you never meet the donor. She's at the IVF clinic the same day we were. So she was taking her shots to grow all of her eggs. I was taking shots to align my cycle with hers. And then on the day of the transfer, or excuse me, on the day of the retrieval, we were in St. Louis. She was in St. Louis at the office, but we never crossed paths. Um, My husband gave his sample and they created embryos with her 20 eggs that she produced. So from there, we ended up with a large number of high-quality embryos. And five days later, we transferred two embryos. And those embryos are now my nine-year-old twins, Hannah and Gavin. So the whole journey for our fertility story took four years four IVF cycles with an egg donor, two surgeries, two doctors, two fertility clinics in two different states, leading to two kids. So at that point, I, you know, we found out we had a positive pregnancy test. We couldn't believe it. It had been four years coming of negative tests, negative tests. So it was amazing when we got that result. Um, We went for our first sonogram around six or seven weeks. And the sonographer showed us on the screen. She's like, oh, there it is. It's, you know, they wanted to make sure it was implanted in the uterus and not a ectopic and everything looked great. And so we said, okay, that's awesome. And so we knew we had just, we had implanted two embryos. And so we said, okay, so just one baby. And she said, well, let me look again. Oh, nope, actually there's two. So then of course we were like, maybe you should check a third time and make sure there's not any more, but there weren't any more. So that was when we found out we were having twins. So from there, what I like to say about my pregnancy is that it was entirely normal until the one day it was not. So for the first 20 weeks, everything was actually pretty easy, especially considering I was carrying twins. I had some low-grade nausea, but I mean, that was really it. I wasn't even that tired. I wasn't even that nauseous. Everything was looking good at the doctor's office. I, I just felt like it was unbelievable considering how many negative things we'd had happen up until that, but everything was going fine. And I went into the doctor, so I had my anatomy scan around 20 weeks. We found out we were having a little girl and a little boy. We were over the moon because we knew we would have been so happy anyway, but we knew that this was our last chance to have kids. And the fact that we were having two and a boy and a girl, it just was amazing. So 
it wasn't long after that, maybe a week or so, when I went back into the doctor for a regular appointment, they had done the where they checked the heartbeat, they had done the belly sonogram, everything was looking great. And my doctor, my OB, who was amazing, he was just being a little bit extra careful with me. I think part of it was because the fact that it was twins, part of it was because he knew our whole fertility story and how much it took for us to get pregnant. And so he had said, you know what, let's just check a transvaginal sonogram which is when they use a wand vaginally to check what your cervix is looking like. So I said, okay, went back to the ultrasound room and we did the transvaginal sonogram and that's where everything changed. So our sonographer very calmly stepped out of the room went and got the doctor. He came back. I was by myself at this visit, by the way, because everything was just a traditional visit. And he told me that I had what was called funneling. So basically, when you have a baby and your cervix dilates, that means it's widening and opening from the bottom in order to prepare for the baby to deliver. So what was happening to me was that my cervix was opening from the top, leading to what's called funneling, leading the cervix to shorten, and that can lead to premature delivery. And at this point, I was around 21 weeks or so. And so my cervix had shortened and they put me on immediate bed rest. So at that point, my biggest concern was, you know, I was working. I was the only public health PT at my clinic. What was I going to do with all my patients? How was I going to maintain my program? I was thinking it really wasn't that big of a deal. I was thinking I might be on bed rest for a week or so, and then I was planning to go right back to work and see all my patients. But as you can imagine, that's not the way things went. So they said, go home, bed rest, get up and go to the bathroom. It's the only time you need to be up, and then come back and we'll recheck tomorrow. So that's what I did. I came back the next day, and they rechecked, and they said, okay, still there. It's not going to change. It's not going to go backwards, but it hadn't worsened. So we were like, that's awesome. So they said, that was a Friday, so they were like, okay, go home, same thing, bed rest throughout the weekend, only get up and go to the bathroom, come back on Monday, and we'll, re we'll recheck again. So what I hadn't said is during this whole time, I had absolutely no symptoms. I had no cramping. I had no bleeding. I had no, no fatigue, no nausea. Like I just felt normal, and this was happening inside, and I, it was very surreal because I didn't feel like anything was going on at all. But so I went home. I'll never forget that was my husband's birthday weekend. So we, you know, he went out and got takeout, got his own takeout birthday dinner, and we came home and ate it in front of the TV. And, you know, that was that. We hung out all weekend, watched movies, relaxed. I went back on Monday. He went with me this time. So finally, I'd kind of learned my lesson there. And I'm so thankful he did because that's when everything changed. So at that point, my math was might have been a little off earlier because at this point when I went back in, I was 22 weeks and five days. And I went back to that same ultrasound room. They did the same transvaginal sonogram. I felt the exact same, but things got crazy from there. The sonographer basically ran out, paged the doctor. He comes running in. Another nurse comes in with a wheelchair. I am, I have no idea what's going on. The one with the wheelchair is saying, don't push, don't push. And I'm like, why on earth would I push? And they transferred me to another room and my OB checked me. And at that point, 
I was dilating from the bottom also. I was 100% effaced, and they were basically sure these twins were coming at 22 weeks and five days. So my office was right across from the hospital. So they put me in the wheelchair. They called over to antepartum to let them know I was coming, and they wheeled me across the street and took me directly up to antepartum where more chaos as they checked me in. They were able to give me a medication to try to slow down labor for a few days. They um, started giving me, they gave me a steroid shot in my hip to speed up the development of the baby's lungs because they were so premature. And they were calm, but what I didn't realize later is everyone pretty pretty much expected those babies to come that night. And the NICU team came down. At that time, they told us that when a baby was born at 22 weeks, they didn't typically try to intubate that baby unless the baby was really giving a big effort. That's changed. So my twins are nine and a half. The same hospital I was at now will try to resuscitate 22-weekers. They told us at 23 weeks that it was up to the parents, and at 24 weeks they would try to intervene. So we understood that. We stayed up late that night trying to finalize names because we had some ideas, but we hadn't really picked names yet. So we finally picked Hannah Grace and Gavin Michael, and the nurse gave me some medication to help me sleep. And that was it till I woke up the next morning, and everyone was shocked I was still there and hadn't hadn't gone into labor. So I managed to stay on antepartum for 10 days. At 23 weeks, they came in with a form for us to sign saying, do you want us to try to intubate your kids if they're born during this 23rd week? And we were like, yes, absolutely. So we signed the form and everything stayed the same until about 1.30 a.m. when I was 24 weeks and one day gestation. And that's when I woke up. I was having contractions, not as strong as when people go, you know, have the strong labor contractions, more like a strong period cramp is what I was having. And then when I got up to go to the bedside commode, there was blood for the first time. So everyone rushed in. We tried all of the last minute medications to try to slow down this delivery. I was given magnesium, which for any of you who have been on magnesium, it's like your body's basically on fire. But nothing really slowed down the delivery. So at 24 weeks and one day, around 11.40 in the morning, I had my emergency C-section. So the twins were what was called micropremies. So during the C-section, the NICU team was in the delivery room. The I, I mean, there were probably 50 people in that room. There were four people for each baby. So each baby had their little isolate they were going to with a neonatologist a nurse practitioner, a nurse, and a respiratory therapist who would do the intubation, we knew that the babies would not be breathing on their own. They, My hospital was wonderful about preparing us. They told us they would not be breathing on their own. Their eyes would not be open. By the time we could see them, they would be hooked to many, many tubes and wires. It was really important for me to pump breast milk. Like They really prepared us for everything. So, But despite that, of course, we were tr- still you know, completely freaked out about the whole thing. So we went into the C-section. Hannah was born first. She was baby A. So what they do in that situation is they 
took her out of the uterus. They lifted her up, held her above the sterile drape for just maybe two seconds. I'll never forget. She was trying to blow bubbles. And then they whisked her off to her team so that they could intubate her and get her on a ventilator. And two minutes later, Gavin was born. Now he was transverse, which means he was sideways. And so he was kind of stuck. They had to work a little harder to get him out of there. And he also required more intervention at birth. So it took like three tries to intubate him, to get him on the ventilator. And they also had to do chest compressions. He he was having a very slow heart rate. His heartbeat never stopped, but it was really slow. So he took longer to get to the point where they could rush him up to the NICU. And so when they take the babies up to the NICU, what they do is they – you know, the whole team has the baby in the isolate and they're literally running past you, but they pause at the bed for just a second so you can see the baby. And so I'll never forget when Hannah's team paused, one of the nurses who became one of my favorite nurses in the NICU during our four-month stay paused and said, congratulations, mama. And that kind of blew my mind because at that point, everything had just been a medical emergency. I hadn't even thought about the fact that I'm a mom and these are my kids. I mean, you do, but you it's also surreal that you don't. You're just so concerned about the medical part of it. And that really kind of blew my mind there. So they rushed Hannah up. A few minutes later, they rushed Gavin up. My husband was like, what do I do? I sent him with them. And so then it was just myself and a couple people left while they repaired my incision. So from there... I had a lot of drugs in my system. My memories are pretty hazy. I do remember they took my entire bed all the way up to the NICU. So I, I had to remain flat for my C-section, but that I could, could see the babies in their NICU rooms. I will admit I could barely, barely remember it, but I think that's kind of okay because it was pretty terrifying around that time. So they brought me back down. And then I kind of began my C-section recovery. At about 12 hours, I sat up. They wanted me to try to start pumping. So when you deliver a baby at 24 weeks, your milk is obviously not ready to come in. So nothing really happened, but they want to get things started as best they can. So um, I sat up. Nothing happened with the pumping. The C-section scar was excruciating, sitting up in bed. It was awful. Laid back down. About an hour later, one of the nurse practitioners came down from the from the NICU and said, Gavin's not doing well. We don't feel like we're in danger of losing him right this minute, but we had to give him extra treatment, extra breathing treatments, and he's on a higher powered ventilator called an oscillator because he just couldn't keep his oxygen up. And my nurse said, Do you want me to take you upstairs so you can go see them? And it was only an hour after I had painfully tried to sit up in bed, but I was like, absolutely. And I sat up in bed and walked to the wheelchair on my own without pain, which is crazy. That just tells us how our brains can work. Now, that being said, the pain totally came back later. So it didn't magically go away forever. But she took me upstairs and that was my first introduction to the NICU. The babies were very, very sick. When they were born, they were born at one and a half pounds each. Hannah was 11 and three-fourths inches long, and Gavin was 12 inches exactly. They were both hooked up to ventilators. Gavin was on a higher-powered ventilator called an oscillator, which 
basically makes it look like the baby is shaking the whole time. It's super loud. They had so many tubes and wires and they each were so critical that they had one-to-one nursing. So they each had their own nurse that didn't leave their bedside the whole time. Their oxygen saturations were honestly awful. They couldn't stay up. They would dip 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s, which caused the alarms to just frantically ring because they needed intervention. They needed their oxygen bumped up to help them on the ventilator. So that began day one of our 122-day NICU journey. So from there, we basically got into this routine where for the next couple days, I was in the hospital. I worked with lactation to try and try and try to pump breast milk. I finally started getting these teensy tiny little vials and everyone was so kind. They were so encouraging. They told me that was so awesome. And I would use that every time, you know, I would pump every three hours. And so then I would carefully walk that up to the NICU and I'd get to go see my babies when I dropped off the milk. And then I'd walk back down when they made me. And by walk, I mean I was using an elevator, of course. But And then they'd make me rest, make me try to eat. So I will say that because my babies were so sick, I didn't care about my C-section. I didn't care about my rehab. And I'll talk about that later when I talk about my second book. Um, because I was a pelvic floor PT. I should know all the things. And I just didn't care because you don't when your babies are life or death. So that's kind of where we were. My kiddos were in the NICU for four months, which was 122 days. Um, And they had, like I said, they were on ventilators for seven weeks. Then they moved to what's called CPAP, which is oxygen support, but a little bit less. For a couple weeks. And then they moved to a nasal cannula, which is the tube that goes under your nose. And that's what they came home on in terms of oxygen. They had many blood transfusions. Gavin had nine blood transfusions. Hannah had seven. They had lots of infections that they had to work with. Um, Gavin had a surgery at three weeks called a PDA ligation. Very common in micropremies. There's kind of a ductus that remains open, which normally closes when babies are born, but it remained open. So he had cardiac vessel surgery at three weeks. He was still only a pound. And um, that was awful. However, well, it was awful meaning terrifying going into it, but it was actually wonderful because as soon as he had it, his oxygen numbers got so much better. He still had to be on the ventilator for another month, but he wasn't desatting down to 30 or 40 percent, which just so you know, you should be about 98, 97, 98, 99 percent. They began to get OT in the hospital to kind of stretch their muscles, um, and we began to learn how to do cares. So that would be diaper changes, temperature checks, um, And then we actually got to hold Hannah at right about three days and Gavin at around a week and to do what we call kangaroo care, which is skin to skin, 
holding very carefully in a chair, no rocking, nothing like that. Um, it took about three people to transfer the baby into my arms and they cuddled the baby up, taped everything down, and then I could stay there for anywhere from one to three hours, depending on how they were doing. And when I wasn't holding one baby, my husband could hold the other baby. And looking back now, I know some hospitals don't do this. And so I feel very fortunate that we were able to do this kangaroo care. That was a really big part of our NICU journey. I continued to pump throughout the whole time. They were fed in the beginning just like a milliliter of breast milk through their feeding tubes. But by the time we went home, they were getting a combination of breast milk and formula to increase calories through their through their feeding tubes. So we were there a total of four months. We went home at what would have been about 20, excuse me, 41 and a half weeks gestation. And then that began our journey of taking care of micropremie twins at home post NICU. So when you bring home preemies, especially micropremies, our schedule was full of appointments. So we came, the twins came home in October, which is prime RSV flu season. So we locked down and didn't leave our home with the exception of all of these doctor's appointments we had. So at that time to take the two kids to a doctor's appointment was a two to three person job because we had two babies, two car seats, and both babies were attached to oxygen and then both babies were attached to monitors. So we basically had a giant stroller with a big basket in the bottom that would hold all of the oxygen tanks and the apnea monitors. My husband was usually able to come with me. If he couldn't, my mom would come because there was absolutely no way I could do it by myself. So the kids did have trouble with feeding. They had to be on thickened feeds so that they wouldn't aspirate the milk into their lungs. And so by the end of the NICU stay, they actually had to go off breast milk because it was too thin for them. So I had a bunch stacked away in the freezer that they would eventually get later. But our life basically is was staying home, feeding every three hours. So I'd feed one twin for 45 minutes, the other twin for 45 minutes, play a little, sleep a little. And then we would go to doctor's appointments and we had in-home therapy coming into our house. So since birth, they've had physical therapy and occupational therapy. As the kids started to get older, when they were about six months, which would have been about two months adjusted age, I was do stretch, I was doing stretches with them the whole time. I started to notice a difference between Hannah and Gavin when I would do the stretches. So Hannah's muscles would be nice and soft and limber, and Gavin's muscles started to get a little tighter. Now, this was a huge red flag and concern for me because one thing I hadn't mentioned earlier one of the biggest things that happened when the kids were in the NICU was because of the high pressure of oxygen that they had, they both had bleeding into their brains. So they had what's called intraventricular hemorrhages, which again is bleeding into their brains. Hannah had grade two, which it goes from one to four. Two is considered relatively mild. It's still a brain bleed. But Gavin had a grade four on his left side and a grade two on his right. 
And what that puts you at risk for is cerebral palsy. So as soon as, again, as a PT, I kind of knew about CP and what it felt like. And I began to know pretty much at six months that Gavin had CP. We just didn't know how severe it would be. So they will not give you a diagnosis for CP at that point. Our in-home therapists, they definitely can't diagnose it, but they could feel it too. And so we would kind of talk around it, them knowing I'm a PT, but them not being able to say actually that he had CP, but we all knew it. Um, And that began a long journey with Gavin. So both of my kids had, they hit their developmental milestones, but they were really delayed. So Hannah walked around 18 months, Gavin rocked around 22 months. When Gavin first learned to pull up to standing, his toes were so pointed that the poor little guy would pull up all the way up onto his pointed toes, all the way rolling over onto his toenails. That's how much tone or tight muscle he had in his calves. So he got fitted for what's called AFOs, ankle foot orthotics, or the braces that you sometimes see kids wear. They're plastic braces and they go either in the shoe and they go up the back, up towards the back of the knee. He got fitted for his first pair when he was probably around 20 months or a little younger old. And he wore those braces until kindergarten. Obviously different ones as he grew, but he wore those plastic braces that go up the back of your calf until he went to kindergarten. So that was a big journey with that. He also had a cranial helmet, which a lot of kiddos do to flat um, to help a flat spot on his bed. He had a lot of torticollis, which was related to his CP. He was tighter on the side, the side that was affected by the grade four brain bleed. Because of his CP, which did eventually get diagnosed around age two or so, he has been in physical therapy from birth and he all the way through and he still is. So he's nine and a half. He will probably continue to have physical therapy. Both kids had occupational therapy in our home for the first three years to work on feeding. And then we eventually had a in-home speech therapist join our, our team around the kid's age of one and a half or two or so, mainly for Hannah. So we had in-home care from birth to three. From three to five, Hannah did not qualify for services at that point. Gavin qualified for PT and OT through the school district, but I wanted him to have a little bit more PT and OT. So we were doing it through the school district and we were also doing outpatient PT and OT. Gavin had a surgery at age four called selective dorsal rhizotomy. We actually went back to St. Louis for this. There's a world-renowned surgeon there. They, This is a surgery done specifically for CP where they go in and test the nerves. The surgery was an all-day surgery. It was six to seven-hour surgery. They go in and test the nerves to see which ones are causing the spasticity of the muscles. Then they actually permanently cut them we entered the world of elementary school. So we love our elementary school. We have a lot of really good teachers, therapists, special education teachers at our school. Gavin immediately qualified for an IEP. Eventually, both kids got an IEP. Both kids were diagnosed with ADHD. Um, We are using medication for that now, but we are also doing specific techniques that we learn in OT, and that has 
helped. ADHD is still kind of a kind of a thing for us right now we're working with. Um, the kids are now in the second semester of their third grade year. We did do virtual school at home for a year and a half with COVID. Everyone around our area did virtual school for a half a year, the second half of their kindergarten year. But we also chose to keep them home for all of their first grade year just because we didn't know with them being micro preemies and having Gavin especially having damage to his lungs. He had had a lot of croup. He'd had a lot of asthma issues up until about the ages of three or four. So we were on the safe side. We really locked down during the first year and a half of COVID until the kids could get their vaccines. They eventually did get COVID and they did fine. However, we didn't want them in school till after they'd had their vaccine. So today they're healthy, happy third graders. So Gavin, he does have CP, but he attends, you know, regular school. He can run, jump, swim. He's just a little slower at some of those things than the other kids. He played t-ball and then he played baseball. Hannah is also doing amazing. She is on the swim team. She's on her second swim team now, and she wants to be in a musical this spring is her new thing. They're musical in Lee Summit this spring is going to be Annie, and she wants to try out to be in Annie. A regular week for us is the kids go to school, and they're pulled out for some services. Gavin's pulled out for more than Hannah. Both get special ed um, and both get speech, and Gavin also gets OT. I declined school PT because he gets outpatient OT and PT, and his outpatient PT works him so much harder than they ever would be able to at the school. So we're covered on all the therapy basises. We do struggle a bit with learning to read and learning math, but we're we're moving along. We're kind of not where we necessarily should be with the classmates, but my only concern is that they're both learning and they're both improving on where they were. And so that's all I care about. Um, we've learned a lot about IEPs and all of those fun things. Um, Gavin's favorite things. He loves to just play outside with the neighbors. That's probably his most top thing he would love to do. He played baseball. He likes to shoot hoops with his friends. He loves cars and talks cars and tools with his dad. He's also really getting into watching sports. So he loves to watch football games and college basketball games. And he loves our pets. We have a dog and two cats. And he's just a really happy guy. So Hannah also loves our pets and all animals. She currently wants to be a zookeeper when she grows up. She loves playing outside with friends. She loves swimming. She just, her favorite thing right now is foxes. So she has a fox bedspread, a fox backpack. She has a, loves her fox Lego set. She watches foxes online. She is obsessed with foxes. And like I said, they're both healthy, happy kiddos. So we definitely, our life today is definitely still affected by their micro preemie beginnings. However, they are, um, you know, I'll use the your, you use the word miracles. It's very cliche, but really they honestly are. And this has led me to wanting to reach out and meet other moms of other kiddos and learn their stories, which is why I started the Mama Sisterhood podcast. I also have self-published two books. The first one's called Learning to Breathe. It's on Amazon, and that is basically our NICU journey. 
The second book, I published the first one when they were three. The second book I published last year, it's called The NICU Mama Survival Guide. This uses my knowledge as a pelvic health PT combined with my knowledge as a NICU mom, because like I said earlier, when we were in the NICU, I did not care about rehabbing my pregnancy, my C-section, nothing. And years later, after I've gotten past a lot of this trauma and really started thinking about it, you can rehab from your pregnancy and your delivery while your kids are in the NICU, never leaving your baby's bedside. So I wrote that book to try to get out to as many NICU moms as I can to teach them how to take care of themselves and their postpartum recovery while they have a baby in the NICU, whether their baby is in the NICU for two days or a year, they can still focus on themselves as well. So that's a little bit about our journey. I really look forward to meeting so many more people through this podcast and getting our story and other stories out there. I am an open book, so if anyone ever has a question for me or you know wants to reach out because they're in a similar situation, I am always happy to do that. And I just wanted to tell our story to give a little bit of hope to other mamas out there who may have preemies, may have kids with CP, ADHD, any of their own journeys, whether that's medical or mental health or just having kids in general, I wanted to give a little hope and show people that really, really terrifying situations can have really happy endings. It may be a lot of hard work, but you'll get there and be okay too. So that's it for today. Thank you, mamas, for joining me and I will catch you next time. Thanks for joining us today on the Mama Sisterhood Podcast. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any extraordinary motherhood journeys. Also, I would really appreciate it if you could take a second to rate and review. This helps me reach more moms. See you next week.